<laughs> no, the truth is, on behalf of the staff, we are, uh, we are very grateful uh, to do what we do. We're grateful for you. We do feel your appreciation uh, very much. Thank you. I had a professor in seminary. Some of you that are older may remember the name, Dr. Howard Hendricks. And he uh, told us in class one day, if you're in the ministry for the money, you haven't got the intellectual qualifications. And uh, our staff doesn't ask for much, so this is icing on the cake. Uh, One of my friends likes to say, there's not enough money in the world to pay me to do what I do. That's true. It's a calling from God uh, for most of us to serve you. So we are very grateful, so thank you. And uh, thank you for your encouragement. Several of you have encouraged us. Uh, Before we uh, jump into Matthew, um, I'm sure if you've paid any attention to the press... The news this week, you're very aware of the hate crimes, three this week alone, the shooting in, the, in Pennsylvania at the Jewish synagogue and um, other places. And it just, it just feels to me like it's out of control. Uh, I just think we should stop and pray. I mean, today of all days, we're talking about loving your enemies. And here we have people that are just spreading hate. Uh, it's, and I'll be honest with you, it's hard for me to understand it. Um, It really is. I guess I'm astounded. I've been a Christian over 40 years, and I'm astounded at the ways that we can hurt each other. It's just amazing to me. We need help, don't we? We need the Lord. And um, those people that have so much vitriol, so much hate coming out, I just wish they knew what we knew, the secret to happiness. And it's not revenge and all of that. Let's, let's pray. Father, we do lift up our nation and the other nations around us. Lord, we're not the only ones in the world with this problem. But yet, it's close to home for us. Um, <clears throat> people that are filled with so much hate. God, I can only imagine the sorrow it brings you because it brings us sorrow. Lord, we are so sorry that we are a people that uh, are, to use your words, so obstinate and stiff-necked. Thank you for your spirit to bring grace into our lives. Father, the, this problem at a national level is beyond my pay grade. I, I simply don't know what the answer is. I know I don't want armed guards and uh, metal detectors in my church. I know I don't want that. And Father, I pray that somehow that you would give wisdom to our leadership um, to know perhaps how to curb this growing sense of violence. Lord, I know that part of the answer is has to be a return to values that are important to you, morals that are important to you. So I pray for our church that you would help us in our county right here with our people to be the type of people that bring a sense of authentic and genuine, life-changing, encouraging love to the people around us so that they, they won't... Uh, have that tendency, or they'll at least fight the tendency to hatred. Thank you for your goodness to us. And help us today as we look in your word, talking about this very problem of hatred. Help us. In your son's name we pray. Well, today we're talking about um, love for enemies. I think Mark probably mentioned that in the the intro. I was out blabbing out there with people. And um, we're talking about what does it mean to love our enemies. And this is the last antithetical statement in the Sermon on the Mount. Antithetical, where Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say. Okay, so this is the last one. 
It's probably the most challenging to live out. It strikes really close to home for all of us. Uh, And it kind of summarizes everything we've been talking about all summer and all fall. It's kind of a summarizing statement about this. Now remember, with the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is taking people where they've never gone before. He's teaching us that our sense of justice is not very good. It's really not. On the very best days, we still, as Paul says, see through uh, glass darkly. It's not very good. And so all of this language that he's talking about here is uh, new to us. It may not be new cognitively, but boy, is it new to work it out in life on a day-to-day, moment-by-moment basis. It's fascinating to me. I, I shared with the elders that um, I never met with a person that was involved in an affair outside their marriage, where I said, you know, uh, adultery is sin. And they said, what? I've never had that happen. I don't need to stand up here and beat on the pulpit about adultery being sin. You already know that. That's not the problem, is it? I don't have to tell you that getting angry doesn't accomplish the purposes of God. You already know that. I don't have to tell you that lust is destructive. You already know that. That's never the issue. It's not more knowledge. More knowledge doesn't solve the problem. We're going to get into it today. What's actually behind this? And what Jesus is doing with this whole Sermon on the Mount is taking the world where they've never gone before. Our natural view is based on the world system. Now... The longer we are in Christ, the more that gets checked, the more it gets challenged, but it never gets easy, does it? doesn't for me. Maybe I'm alone in that. (laughs) So with the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is announcing the kingdom of God. Remember he said that? Verse 43 is going throughout the region, teaching the, the news, the great news of the kingdom of God. And so he's beginning to explain to us what the law really is all about. And he said earlier in the, in the sermon, we, we covered this a few weeks back, he didn't, come to, uh, he didn't come to end the law or terminate it, but to fulfill it and to show us what it really is like. We have this perspective, and, and I take responsibility as one of the pastors in the United States, of creating this thought, a bunch of laws and old, and it's archaic and all of that, and that is simply not true. I mean, his words here are very, very powerful when he says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law. I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will disappear at all from the law until all is accomplished. That hasn't happened yet. Somehow the law is still at work. Now, I've, I've tried to explain it different ways, but what the law did, when you look at the Mosaic law, the Torah, and you, and you really wrestle with what's in there, uh, yeah, it feels very hard, doesn't it? It feels very hard for us. In fact, in the classroom, when I ask the question, what, do you, what words come to mind when you think of the Mosaic Law? Rigid, inflexible, impossible, etc., etc. Um, and yet, that's not what the New Testament authors said. They use words like holy, right, perfect, good. Why? Because I spoke into a very hostile 
and dark world. We didn't have to guess. None of the other gods spoke. Ours did. And gave us a law. See, here's what I expect from you. That's called grace. That's what it's called. You've heard me use a discussion of what sin is all about. Right? If I say to my four-year-old son, don't run out into the street because you're going to get hurt. If I don't say that, he's going to get hurt if he runs out. Therefore, it's an act of grace. If God had not said alcoholism was sin, we would have to find out the hard way. But we don't. And so the law is something that is absolutely wonderful because our God speaks into a dark world. And the general pattern that we see is that around Israel was unrestrained evil. Okay, it was a very hostile world. And what the law does is it begins to restrain and mitigate those evil practices and introduce dignity, human dignity and holiness of what God is like. Because the law reveals the very character of God. I can look in any of your families and I can learn about what your character is like by the, by the dynamics and the laws that you put in place, the rules that you put there. How many of you have had children grow up that you're proud of and they've done something well and somebody looks at you and says, good job, dad, good job, mom. Because what your children do is reflect that same principle, that same pattern. So the law reveals the character, the very character of God. Now what Jesus does is that the law really focuses on behavior Jesus takes it one step further and moves it into the internal, makes it internal. It's the heart that's the issue. That's the real problem. It is the heart that generates our behaviors. That's why several times he uses things like, it's not what goes into a person that defiles them, it's what comes out. He even says what goes into them passes through. But what's in here is what comes out, and that's what defiles a person. So he's moving the whole discussion to the internal part of the person and to the heart. Because that's where true redemption has to occur. And the Sermon on the Mount is a long sermon doing that very thing. Okay, so what does it mean to love your enemies? Well, this is the sixth time that Jesus brings up an Old Testament teaching that he plans on expanding. So in Matthew 5.43, let's read Matthew 5.43. You did a great job, Bella. That is Bella back there, right? I can only see from here up. Perfect. (laughs) You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Okay, the very first part of this, love your neighbor, is in the Old Testament. That is part of the Old Testament law. In fact, it was the epitome of the Old Testament. And when Jesus was asked later on by the leadership, uh, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, John starts to say, you cannot love God and hate your brother or sister. You're a liar. You can love both or you can hate both, but you can't love one and not the other. And so this became the epitome, the core that summed up the entire law was this statement right here. But, uh, and he's quoting this right out of Leviticus, the hate your enemy section of it is not found in the law. So he said, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's not found in the law. But we have places in the Old Testament that leads us to understand why they begin to develop this thinking. Look with me, for example, in Psalm 139. 
If only you, God, would slay the wicked. I've kind of prayed that about some of my enemies. <laughs> Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you. I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. So you're grasping right here how the ancient world thought, thought about enemies. Jesus' listeners would not have been surprised to the added words since he's giving them a more traditional interpretation that would have floated around their world. In Qumran, one of the communities connected with the Dead Sea Scrolls, for those of you that went down and got a chance to go see them, in Qumran, they actually went so far as to teach hatred of enemies as the way to holiness. Now, within Judaism, the neighbor was considered to be the Jew and the enemy was considered to be a Gentile. Jesus' parable about the Good Samaritan was not simply about hating each other. It's far deeper than that. It's about crossing ethnic lines into somebody that you really don't like. Being intentional about helping someone who you really don't like. And that's what he's doing here. So now Jesus startles everyone and develops a better kingdom thinking, taking us where we've none, never gone before and what culture has never envisioned with the next verses, Matthew 5, 44 and 45. But I tell you, this isn't contra what they have been told, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, he does a couple of things in this passage here which are important. Number one is he takes the saying, hate your enemy, singular, and makes it plural, love your enemies. If you talk to one of the veterans from World War II, it was very clear who the enemy was in their minds. And by making it plural here, he's doing something not not done before in Jewish literature. He is moving it to the personal level and making it far more of a general concept. Love your enemies, whoever they happen to be, however you define that. Those are the ones that you are to love. The second thing he does, a little bit technical here, is that love your enemies is an imperative, but it's in the present tense. And it has this idea of make this a continual habit. Make it your habit to do this. It's not just a one-off. Love your enemies over and over and over again. Keep loving them. So he adds to that the idea of praying. By the way, none of this is found in Jewish literature. Praying for them. You know, it's really hard to hate somebody that you pray for. If you find yourself struggling to forgive somebody, pray for them. Pray for them. That being the heart. That's what happens. And so he's putting these things together to love them and to pray for them. In the Luke passage, the parallel passage, Luke 6, 27, he has two additional commands. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. We heard that. Then he has these two new ones. Do good to those who hate you. It's not simply love them. Now he's explaining what it means. Do good to them. Bless those who curse you. 
So do good and bless. This isn't simply passive. This is active. Pray for those that pray for those who mistreat you. These ideas are revolutionary. We have no evidence that these existed prior to this. Imagine hearing these words and you live in a world that really is dark and everything has been framed for you in terms of it's okay to hate an enemy. And then all of a sudden you have Jesus coming along saying, no, that's not appropriate. If this is the first time you had heard this, that would be shocking to you, wouldn't it? It would surprise you. So these are very countercultural, very revolutionary ideas. Uh, and it's connected to the kingdom. This is what is expressed and found in the kingdom. Let's go back to Matthew 5, 44, 45, because he's now going to give us the reason for this new command so that we might be children of the Father. Uh, he causes his son to rise. Well, let's go back to the beginning. I tell you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your heavenly Father in heaven. This is what it means to reflect and to involve yourself and engage in the very character of God. To be like God. Why? Well, it's right in the next verse. Why? But all of you, if you think back, I love it when people's faith becomes real. Um, for those of all the different traditions here, that means something different to you. Some people it means praying a certain prayer. Others it means confession of sin. Whatever it is, when your faith becomes real in God, at that time you are, you are uh, brought to life and you begin to make sense of the world. Over and over again, I love the stories of now you can look back and see that God was very engaged with you. He's tapping on the shoulder, whispering in your ear controlling your events to get you to where you are today. And so you can see God's handiwork long, long before uh, your faith became real. That's a statement of who God is, so that you may be children of your heavenly Father. 1954, one of the older New Testament scholars wrote a commentary, Alfred Plummer, on Matthew. And I love what he said here. It's language that's uh, ancient to us, but it's very wonderful. To return evil for good is devilish. Satanic, we would say today. To return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. But to return good for evil is divine. I love those old words. In the same passage, we get to the why of this. Now, the NIV here starts a new sentence. He causes his son to rise. Some of your translations express it this way. It's actually one long sentence in Greek. But I tell you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your heavenly Father, since he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sins reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. The reason we are to love our enemies is because God does that. It's very simple. It's not complex. We do it because God does it. God blesses those who love him and those who hate him. That's what that verse is telling us. He doesn't curse the wicked with all bad things, nor does he bless the good with all good things. You have to understand what life is about. Life is about shaping you into the image of His Son. And that means that sometimes it is really hard. 
like Mark likes to say, he's been married 34 years, 27 of them happily. Right? It's not true in my marriage. We've experienced bliss for 34 years. I like to remind Nancy every, every anniversary is a good thing she married such a great guy. I mean, she needs reminding. Right? You get the point. Life, including marriage, is about our holiness more than our happiness. Pure joy will come one day. That's what hope is all about. It's about our holiness and transformation into the image of Christ. So now, Jesus is going to challenge his disciples to go beyond where they've gone before. Chapter 5, verse 46 and 47. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? Those are the most despised people in that area because they're the ones that had the freedom not only to collect the tax, but to extort money from you, to make money. They were allowed to do that. Roman government didn't care as long as they passed off the taxes. They could extort you, they just couldn't extort the government. We've got to have an agency like that. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> so if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? You see, there's nothing unusual or even wonderful about being uh, returning good for good. That's just being human. There's nothing unusual or even good or wonderful about that. That's what the world does. Jesus is now taking us where we've never gone. He's teaching an entirely new that the world has never seen. As Plummer said, which I quoted earlier, to return good for evil is divine. That is way beyond what the world does. And this is what kingdom living is all about. So he concludes with the goal of the believer in verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. We are to live out our faith. We live out our character that's growing. To live out our belief in God in a way that is startling and honestly quite impossible. We've said all along that what the Sermon on the Mount does, it does not water down. It, it raises the standard to the level of the impossible perfection. It does two things by doing that. It gives us a target so we know where we're heading. But the other thing it does is it sets us up for true grace. Your understanding of grace is only as powerful as your understanding of sin. You water down sin. You water down Grace. Because by making it impossible, guess what? You have no option. It is absolutely hopeless. If God does not intervene, we are without hope. Or as Paul says in Romans 3, there's no one righteous, not even one. There was no one who even does any good. So Isaiah said, all of your deeds are as filthy rags. That's what the Lord says. Filthy rags. See what Jesus has done? By taking it from behavior and moving it to the heart, he's shown us that it's absolutely imperfect. But yes, that's a standard that's expected. 
That means our only option is grace. That's what it means. That's our only choice. This clears the way for the cross to do what the cross is supposed to do. Forgive, atone, redeem, to do all of that. Because now we have a legitimate shot at becoming the very things that God created us for. So he concludes with, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We are to live out our faith in a way that demonstrates absolute allegiance to God. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1. This is a quote from Leviticus 19. Just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. How holy do you have to be to enter into God's presence? 100%. Nothing left, nothing less will, will suffice. Hebrews tells us, by the will of God, we have been declared holy once for all time. What that means is God is overlooking our sin. Does that mean that he is ignoring it? Absolutely not. You see, the true definition of grace is that we love you so much, we're going to ask you the hard questions about your sin. Because if we simply tolerate it, or worse yet, normalize it, then there's no need for grace. Let's don't ever normalize sin. Let's leave the line in the sand. We talked about that as elders. Wherever the Bible draws a line, let's draw the line. That's an act of grace by God to tell us that. Let's don't start saying alcoholism is okay. Okay, I'm not going to get into the debate of the source, whether it's genetic or not. It's not important to me as a theologian. All I can tell you is it's destructive. And it's not in your best interest to leave it untended. So we are not a church that tolerates. We are a church that redeems. So I've met with several of you. What have I told you? No criticism, no judgment, no condemnation, but yes, honesty. So when I'm with you, get angry. Why'd you do that? Why'd you get angry? You had a lot of options available to you. Why that one? Why pornography? Why are you doing that? Is it really satisfying it? Why anger? Why that? Why? I, you fill in the blank. Why? And so I'm not going to condemn, but I am going to ask questions, hard ones. Because you have to get down below the surface and start looking at what's really happening. And that is true grace. True grace is when we move into lives of people and ask those hard questions and help them wrestle with that very thing. That's what holiness is. That's what it means to be perfect. I'm reading a book by John Oswalt, an Old Testament scholar. I've read several of his stuff. This one's on holiness. Here's what he says. Whatever else holy means, it is evidently in marked contrast to that life lived before receiving the grace of God. Whatever that life was like for you, this is the opposite of that. A life marked by conformity to evil desires lived in because of ignorance. So what Peter's doing here is to carefully link the receiving of God's grace with a radically transformed lives. John does the same thing. If you say you love God but you hate your brother, you're a liar. He's linking them together. Grace and transformation cannot be separated. These are my words. Transformation requires exposure of your sin. Can't transform what you don't understand or know. 
To claim to have received God's forgiving grace while continuing to live a life that is dominated by these evil desires is a contradiction in terms. But someone will surely say, this is to belabor the obvious. Everyone who knows anything about Christianity will certainly know that Christians are expected to live different lives after their conversion than before. That may be so, but I wonder how seriously modern Western Christians really do take that to heart. I don't have to tell you adultery is wrong. I don't have to tell you pornography is wrong. I don't have to tell you anger is wrong. Complaining is wrong. You already know that. That's not the problem. Never has been. So according to Peter, what is the biblical doctrine of holiness? It has four components. Number one, holiness, first of all, defines a way of living, a way of life, a way of behaving. Secondly, it is a way of behaving which is determined by the character of God. You see, we don't act and behave because it makes us happy. As Christians, we act and live because we believe in the holy character of God. And what we're told to do is to live out the character of God in our lives. And it becomes our character as well. Number three, it is a way of behaving which all Christians are expected to manifest. So yes, we do expect you to continue to grow in holiness. The Lord expects it. And number four, it is a way of behaving which is markedly different from that of unbelievers. It's completely different. By the way, this is how Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount. Look in verse 20 of chapter 5. I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's where he began. So what does all this mean? Why would Jesus teach us this? Just a couple of concluding thoughts. First of all, it's what we're created for. This is what we're made for, to do this. It generates a deeper joy by following these tough commands. You know, it's in our best interest to love and forgive. If you don't forgive, you're the one that's hurt, not the one that has offended you. Because a hard heart is like cancer. It just eats away at joy. We're created to forgive. We're created to love. So he's asking us to do what we are created to do. But second of all, this idea of loving your neighbor uh, and loving your enemy, it takes it into a much deeper level than we've ever seen before. Because this is where we actually engage faith at the deepest level. It's really hard to forgive someone who has wounded you and hurt you an enemy, to love them. Jesus is not teaching that we show random acts of kindness. He's not teaching that at all. He's teaching that we go much further and we actually love them. We show intentional love to those who are intent on hurting us. If God really wanted to redeem your enemy if he really wanted to, to, to transform the one who is hurting you 
What's the best thing he can do? Route him right into your life. They expect everybody else to love them. You're the surprise. Right? You're the surprise. So if God really does care about your enemy, he's going to send them your way. That's what he's going to do. That's the best gift he can give them. Because you have the power to surprise them. The rest of the world doesn't. That's why I said even the tax collectors are doing that. That's nothing. Father, thank you. Once again, another passage, Lord, that is impossible for us to follow. And yet you've called upon us to figure out how to do that. By your grace and by means of the power of your spirit, you have asked us to do this. Thanks for forgiving us when we were hostile to you. Thanks for sending us rain. And even more than that, sending us your spirit. Thanks for never giving up on us. We are so grateful for that. In your son's name, amen.